That, there is life. Is it live? Hey, Internet. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to January. We're already in January, but welcome back to January. Life continues to go crazy, but piece by piece, we are getting closer to what we want to do here on Saturday morning. So for the first time in several weeks, we're not recording a podcast. That's already been done, even though it has not been released yet. Had a fun conversation with Brian Wolfmuller just a couple of days ago. Um, That's interesting. Okay, yeah, just a couple of days ago, and I just haven't had the opportunity yet to finish that up and get it online for you. We had intended to talk about the end of the world, and we almost did, and then we talked about everything else instead. But uh, that'll be releasing later today. Uh, For this morning, I've got a couple of questions lined up to go, and then I really want to get into your questions on the side. So uh, have your questions ready for in about 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so, and we'll dig directly into those. Uh, Meanwhile, I do have to head out of here at 8.45, so it's going to be a little bit shorter show than... uh, than it has been the past few weeks. Hopefully my sound is is uh, functioning much better than it has been. I feel like we got that thing worked out. I've got some uh, sound-reducing pads on the wall to help with the echo and whatnot. The only thing that that did that I was not expecting until I looked at it this morning is it blocked my corner light, which has been bouncing off of the white wall and, and making the shadow not appear on my face as much. And you can see my face is definitely in the shadow. So... One piece at a time, and then one piece at a time, and eventually we'll get there. Oh, and and um, because I can see it in the background, and it is not uh, completely visible, I don't know if I'm going to move it or not permanently, but I do have to share this. I was given, I don't, I don't know how this is for you. Like, like, a lot of times when you open a Christmas present, you're like, cool, like, that's neat, thank you. I can probably figure out how to use this. Right, like somewhere in my life, I may indeed be able to use this, and guilt will make it so that I do find a way. Right now, it is not always true. I know it's not always true, but it's true a lot. And especially, I mean, you can you can take the route of you know, here's my Christmas list. Buy from this list or else. Right, which which I don't generally do as an adult male. It's not been my my thing for a while now. Although my my sister, God bless her heart. Uh, she figured out, I mean, it's really clever. I'm going to wait on that. Uh, she figured out, if you just, you know, make your Amazon list all year what you want and then just let people kind of know it's there, not a bad idea. So it's not a bad idea. But but I didn't do that. I haven't done that. And my uh, my good buddy, my my friend, my head elder, and uh, someone who some of you would know because he, he's on Facebook more than he should be, uh, he... He showed up the other day and he said, uh, here, I, this was late. This is your present. And I thought I'd got my present from him. He gave me a giant box of black pens, which for, for your whiteboard, because I only want to use black pens on the whiteboard. And I'm always forgetting mine in the other room. I have to go get it. So it was like a big joke to give me this box of pens. But uh, he hands me this little bag. And inside this little bag is this marvelous Magpul clip for an AR-15, and it's not just any old clip. I mean, look at that. You got the Don't Tread On Me original militia American flag on this thing. How beautiful is this? And this is also a bit of a joke because um, I did not know that Magpul made uh, armaments, right? I have a Magpul cover for my phone, and I've loved it for many years. Uh, in fact, I bought two when I got a new phone with a different size, and uh, he has one too. And so we were we were talking about it one day. I'm like, these are really great. They're so cool. And somehow in that conversation, I gave the impression of what I thought, which is that they just make 
iPhone covers. <laughs> He's like, no, they make other stuff. And so, uh, so he wanted to make sure that I could, I could make use of that. And then he went over and above uh, with that, don't tread on me. Now, if you don't know about that story of the don't tread on me flag, that is the, uh, the militia flag of the first militia group to respond to the call of the burgeoning U.S. Well, we weren't the U.S. yet, right? Uh, rebellion against the British, the Revolutionary War. So the first militia to respond was, uh, and I don't know if they were from from the Massachusetts area. I think they were. But don't tread on me, that, that yellow snake. Whenever you see that on bumper stickers or whatever, basically that saying, um, you know, let's let's remain free peoples in America here, right? That, that's the idea behind that. Anyway, and it, 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 it touches my heart. I like freedom. Okay, so um, it's not a clip, it's a magazine. Thank you. I'm sorry, I betray my ignorance while I am learning uh, how to use weapons uh, for the sake of defending my homeland and all that. Um, I, I am by no means a knowledgeable in that, in that realm. Okay, but what I am knowledgeable about, I think I can help you with a little this morning, are some of these questions that have been coming across the pipe from you to me. So, we're going to start this morning with, uh, with this one here. It says, oh, come on. You, you were just doing it. There you go. According to scripture, what value should we put on race, ethnicity together, both as Christians and as civilization? My brother has been reading from American Renaissance, a website often associated with the alt-right, and has started to adopt some of their ideas. And it seems to me that this sort of thinking is just the other side of the tribalism of the progressives. Any help would be great. Now, you know, first off, I don't know anything about American Renaissance, so I cannot speak directly to that. But what I can do is I can tell you that when the reaction against the progressive splintering of the culture into microgroups who are all, in theory, oppressing each other in some way. As a part of Marxist uh, instigation of the revolution that is intended to bring about the utopia by throwing off the oppressor and oppressing him, uh, that connects to the Hegelian back-and-forth uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So the idea is that in these revolutions, we're getting closer and closer to a center that is perfect, but it always is through the oppressor being destroyed and the new oppressed becoming the oppressor. Um, the reaction to that, when we go and splinter into a, into a group that uh, believes it's oppressed and thinks it has to rise up and throw off these others that are different, well, we're just doing what they want us to do. <laughs> and we're making their job easier for them. And especially if you're going to throw in something as, as nonsensical as judging human beings on the color of their skin, which, for lack of a better term, I guess we can call race, or ethnicity makes a little more sense than race does. But you got to understand this, that, that if we're going to talk about race and eth ethnicity as if these are um, strictly DNA realities, that, that is kind of the definition of racism. Right there. I mean, it really is. I mean, there are some things that you can study scientifically, right? So, like, if you happen to have more uh, melatonin in your skin, which will give you a, a much darker skin, skin tone, if you happen to have a really, really dark skin tone because of that melatonin being there, and you come from that community, there is a higher risk of heart attack to males in that community of, of human beings, right? 
Now, I guess you could say it this way. African-Americans or black American males have a higher risk of heart attack. I guess that's racism, too, in a sense. But, but see, it's not really about race. What is race? What is this thing we're talking about when we use that term? The term itself is a racist term. It, it, it implies some sort of actual substantial distinction between one human and another based upon their DNA. So, so I wouldn't say that just because someone has a higher risk of heart attack, that makes them a different kind of human, right, uh, at, at all. And then you have the, the deeper, more historical use of the term ethnic or ethnicity, which comes out of the Greek, and it just means nations, nations, peoples. And what they're talking about there is not your skin color. They're not talking about your DNA either. They're talking about your assumptions, your culture. So I prefer to think about culture rather than, than, than race. Race, I don't think there is more than one race. I know it's trite. I know it's just like a little catchy, you know, the, the human race. But honestly, there really is only one. <laughs> and we all are descended from Adam. We are all uh, brothers in the fall, brothers in sin. And we are all part of the same man. So to try to do anything, anything on whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, in which you're going to blame that group of humans over there as somehow substantially different than you, um, well, that, that would be not only racist, but just nonsense. It's just nonsense. It's arrogant nonsense. As opposed to, we can recognize that there are groups of people with better and worse ideas. Now, this this could line up with the way you look because you can like craft yourself to look different because of your ideas. So, for example, in the alt-right, at least when I was a kid, there was a, I don't know if we called them alt-right back then. They were just, you know, bigots, but... <laughs> uh, uh, skinheads, right, that would shave their head as part of a sign of their cultural distinction and whatnot. So, like, certainly, your culture is going to impact the way that you look. But but uh, the issue is not the way that you look. Like, being bald doesn't make you a racist, right? Uh, what makes you a racist or what makes you a hateful person, what makes you somebody who thinks other humans have no value is the cultural assumptions you've come to believe, which would entail you to th to, to, to assume, i got to use the same word again, make you assume you are of more value than others. And then there's, so that's effectively a narcissistic strain. That is effectively what original sin is always doing to us to make us believe somehow that our needs are more valuable than their needs, that those who are close to us are more valuable than others. This is why people don't like hell, by the way. We talked about that last week. I No, no, we're going to talk about that this week a little bit. Um, no, 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 it was last week. It was last week. This is why people don't like hell. Slow down. I'm going to drink some coffee. You with me still? <laughs> All right. So check this out. Check this out. One of the primary reasons people do not like hell is because they might go there or their kids might go there. And so particularly for Christians who've had their children walk away from the faith, and this is a very painful thing. So don't let me, don't, don't hear this as if I'm, as if I'm trying to stick my finger in a wound, right? And, and make you hurt. What I'm trying to do is show how unreasonable and self-driven our position becomes. Okay. So, so your children walk away from the faith, which would imply then, if you're honest, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The fire does not go out for those who choose to be with the devil rather than with God. The implication would be that they are going to burn in eternity. And you don't like that. And the issue is, why? 
Why does that bother you so much? Why is it so terrifying to you that your children could end up in the flames of perdition? Why don't you have that same feeling for every other person you see out there who's not a Christian? Isn't that interesting? That it matters more to you that your children be saved than other people's children be saved. Why is that? And, and the answer is very easy. It's because they're your children. Okay, well, what is it about them being your children that makes them special? Nothing except for your own personal love of you. That's it. When you look at your children, you see you. And who doesn't love you, right? Aren't you the best? I'm the best. I love me. Oh, I love me so much. Which is why when my children don't reflect on me well, I get so upset about it. Because I want them to make me feel better about me. Look, that's my child. Look, they came from me. It's all my fault that they're so awesome. It is that absolute self-love that is sin that is what original sin is. And it's the reason why we ultimately don't like hell. Because if they go, well, then it's my fault. Then maybe I should go. And amazingly, as Christians, we should be able to admit that. Yeah, of course I should. Right? But we don't want to. No, 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 no. It can't be my fault. And so we start backpedaling and hiding and trying to find ways to make the dogma go away so that we can feel better about ourselves. And, and racism, when it's in action, is exactly the same thing. You're, you're trying to justify yourself, and so you have to justify your community. I don't know why my camera... Is it my camera that's moving so much, or is it just my, my microphone? It's just my microphone. You're trying to justify yourself, and so you justify your community, because by then identifying yourself with this community that you believe is better than others, you can convince yourself that you're better than others as well. You try to use other people as your measuring stick, right? And I, I dealt with this in Broken a little bit. The idea that when we judge ourselves against ourselves, we are not wise. I believe the scriptures say that somewhere. That we set up these these trial measurements to convince ourselves we're good. And instead of like using the real measuring stick, what we do is we, we take the real measuring stick and we put it next to somebody else and we see how low they are on it and we make that the new measure. So we try to find the worst examples we can so that we can stand beside that and look down on it and be like, oh, I'm better than them. Let's see how good I am. And what we don't realize is that no matter how, no matter uh, where that is on the stick, that from God's perspective, we're all lying face down in the mud. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a millimeter less in the mud than he is, so I must be better. Oh, I'm fine, right? And then we try to use that to ignore what reality is. That's unbelief. It's the definition of unbelief. And racism in action, that is tribalism when it becomes us versus them, it, that's just one more version of this. And when any side of the community would encourage this kind of cultural assumption, would try to tell people that to, to be diverse by, by hating those not like them. And that can be thinking that everyone that doesn't look like them in one way is oppressing them. That's actually how it always works out. I mean, everyone thinks they're all being oppressed, the victim mentality, rather than just you know, rejoicing in the freedoms we do share here and allowing the diversity to exist, which would be real diversity. <laughs> um, when that happens, right, it is all just enhancing the narcissism that's inherent in us. So, as a Christian, <laughs> is there any place for this kind of thought that, you know, this people group over there 
by nature is less or wrong. No, there's no room for this. All have sinned. We're, we're all down, uh, descended from Adam. Every single last one of us are brothers in the flesh of Adam. And this is not a great thing. That's why we're all dying. And in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, every single human being also has been purchased with the price of redemption. There is a new man. So that anybody who is joined to that new man by flesh and blood, by DNA even, right, uh, is, is now of that second human race that will live forever, which has really nothing to do with the color of your skin or your hair, or your eyes or your sex. It just has everything to do with whether or not you're in the man who already beat death. And this promise is for all nations. Go into all nations. When it says that, ethne, ethnicity, go to every ethnicity. Now, it is a, it's a totality transfer of the word. Our word ethnicity comes from that word. That word's a bigger word. It's a better word. It's all humans, all peoples. Uh, all cultures, all languages and tongues. There is nothing to stop any human being from being salvable, salvageable by Jesus. And so if you come along and start thinking that there's somehow less than you, <clears throat> you know who's not salvageable at a certain point because you're outside on your own is the one who, well, having been forgiven much, now will not forgive a little. You know, the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, who has this massive debt forgiven, and he turns around, he won't give forgive the small debt. Well, when you turn around and you're going to go ahead and say, well, this community over there, no matter how awful they are, I mean, you pick the worst one you can think of. You, let's, let's pick ISIS for a second here, right? So we turn and we look at ISIS individually here, right? We're not talking about nation defense or anything like that. We're not talking about, you know, the good of the city, politics. We're talking about humans. So if I look at the people in ISIS and I decide that they are unforgivable and by, by nature, by substance, less human in some way, less worthy of forgiveness and mercy in Jesus in some way, less worthy of being my brother in the new race, the blood of the cup, the chalice that we drink together to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. If I were to in any way put a wall between that, them and that reality, then I am outside that reality too. Then I am that unforgiving manager who goes and looks at the small debt because what ISIS blows up buildings and murders people. It's really awful. You know what? Compared to you, it's not that much worse. The only difference is what you see. We're all face down in the same mud. And if you're, if you're a little bit up out of the mud so that you're not punching people in the face every day, great. You're still in the mud. You're still in the mud. So when it comes to ethnic relations and the United States of America, which again, I would prefer to speak of it as cultural relations. Um, we have no place, no place for distinguishing humans as of more value or less value than others. They are all created with the same inalienable rights. And it's not just rights, right? It's substance. It's, it's more than even Jefferson. I mean, Jefferson was fine in his own ways, but it's way more than what Jefferson... Um, My wife doesn't want me to die today. That's good. Um, <laughs> uh, and that completely distracted me. Uh, when we're talking about cultural relations, right? Uh, the issue is not who we are physically. The issue is always, if we have a real issue, if there really is a better or a worse out there in the world, it's about what ideas we've assumed to be true. What are our, what are our, what's our worldview? 
what's our underlying assumptions about reality. And I, and I would contend that there is not uh, very many corners in America where anybody really has got that one down well at the moment. I think we're all in free fall. I think as Lutherans, we have something to land on. And a lot of what I'm doing here is saying, hey, let's land. <laughs> let's land on a cultural assumption that we can work with here and then really put it into practice. But uh, you know, one more piece just to keep in mind. I mean, it's so, it's so amazing how quickly racism just devolves into complete nonsense. Because when you go out into the communities of people who have a certain type of skin color, which one am I talking about? How are you going to know, right? You go out into those communities, you find that within those very communities, which they all have the same skin color, there are still distinctions, class distinctions that are effectively race distinctions. The, the prejudices are still there. And, you know, back, back in the day in this country, you know, we hated the Irish. Well, the Irish looked just like the Germans, right? We hated the Italians. We hated the Germans, uh, right now, the, if you go and, and, and uh, look at the interaction between newly arrived African Im immigrants and, you know, centuries here, African-American communities, you don't find a lot of love there, right? We can, we can hate anybody. We can hate anybody. We're really good at it. So when Christians start in, in the need to defend the idol of their politics, which the city can always become an idol to us, we've got to be aware of that. Uh, in the in, in in order to defend the idol of our politics and our freedoms, which I love, how do how we start this morning? I love my freedoms. I don't want them to go away. But when in order to defend that, I listen to the Marxist progressive nonsense of of tribalistic divisions, us versus them, uh, uh, victim mentality, oppressor oppressed garbage, and then pull into it the evolutionarily based. There are some human species versions that are better than others, and it's all connected to like your pool, your pool that, that that gets connected to your skin color of all the most random things to put trust in. When I do that, I'm a, I'm certainly taking a step, at least intellectually, outside of the Christian faith. How long until it destroys the actual Christian faith? I don't know. I don't know. Can you be a racist bigot and still be a Christian? Yes. You can be a lot of things and still be a Christian, but for how long? The mercy of God is there to trust in, but when does that trust, when does that childlike trust die underneath the driving hatred which the devil preaches? And when you're listening to that and listening to that and listening to that, you're going to stop listening to, well, the real stuff. How long until you starve? You know? Uh, I don't know if you all remember. I mean, I've gotten some heat here already. I just since I came back on the on, online in the last couple of months... With regard to, I'm too liberal because I'm because I won't be racist. <laughs> it kills me. Uh, you know, and and it, interestingly enough, uh, I've been accused of being uh, not racist enough. Somehow that's wrong, right? And at the same time, there I know there are individuals out there that think I'm like I'm like a raging racist, uh, which is is fascinating to me too. Um, largely because I'm white. <laughs> And so therefore, I must be racist. And it's like, oh my goodness, what a crazy world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace. All are justified by his grace. In Adam, we have all been one, one great and unclean man. And in one man, Jesus Christ, all men have been bought with a price. Nah. 
So if your philosophy system is, is in denial of that in any way, would create distinctions that are more than just a first article reality, like, yeah, certain DNA groups, you're gonna, you got a good chance of a heart attack. Certain DNA groups may indeed have uh, particular muscle fibers that are more good at this or that. But that's not like, that doesn't make them not human or not like us. That's a good reason for intermarriage, honestly. I mean, shouldn't we be, like, be pooling the DNA as best we can, right? Uh, it's certainly not a reason to ostracize and set apart. Um, now, what is interesting, I suppose, as I say all this, is to realize there will be coming down the pike here those who are genetically altering the future on purpose. And uh, what that will do to the race discussion will be interesting because what, what does it mean when your genes have been manipulated and you are in fact 25% smarter? Now, if that if they can really get there, they're going to kill so many people to make this happen. It's just ridiculous. We're already doing it right with the babies, but um, that's coming. And, and that, that will be an interesting play on this because what, what fallen man does with, with differences with, with Zeno, you know, distinction is we, we create xenophobia, fear of the, the other, fear of the different. Uh, and it ain't going to stop. But see, Christianity is the antidote. And that's why Christians shouldn't be buying into any politics that are an us-them reality when it comes to their humanity. Nah, when it comes to their humanity. All right. I hope that is a helpful answer. Let's see here. What about this question here? Can I get to it? Oh, this one's so long. Here we go. Um, and for that reason... I wonder if this would work. Let's let's try. I almost think I got this thing. Oh, nope, that didn't do it. That didn't do it. <laughs> Don't do this. That hotkey did something different. Um, what I want to do is try to get it on the screen for you because there's so much here. Uh, how, how? But I can't use the cheaters. There we go. This will do it. Are we there? Nope, that did not do it. Uh, double hit it. Doesn't want to get there. Not happening. All right. Well, how would I do this? Like this? There it goes. Look at this. Look at this. All right. So now you can see a bunch of stuff there. Look on the right over here. I don't know if my if my thing is viewable. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot to this one. Uh, this is from the guy who spawned some of those sacramentarian conversations that we've had the last couple of weeks, and uh, particularly with fellowship issues and whatnot. So he's he, we're having a great dialogue here, and I really appreciate it. Um, and th so there's some really good commentary in here, and then there's some stuff where it's like, yeah, I don't know. So he says, sacramentarians have a different Christology from the Lutheran. Yeah, amen to that. I'll submit that the Lutherans have a different theology proper from us Calvinists. Yeah, that that's kind of the issue. Hot take. If the options are being... Uh, felicitously inconsistent Calvinist who takes the supper wrong, but nothing can stop Jesus from going into you, so yeah, versus an idolater who falsely worships bread and wine and tramples the entirety of the first commandment under the table of the law, I'll take the former. Now, that's a really interesting take on Pascal's wager, right? Do you see this? Hold on. P-A-S-C-H-A-L. Oh, Dvorak's coming slowly, Pascal's. Uh, W-A-G-E-R. Okay. Pascal's Wager. You familiar with this? This was a, a gambit or a, a philosophical... Ah, I, sh I shouldn't say it that way at all. It just doesn't really help, right? This is a mind trick argument. And it's like a toy argument for trying to convince people that God exists. 
it's 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 a it's a trick though. It's a bait and switch. And Pascal was a genius. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the guy is why we have math in a lot of ways. Uh, but uh, what he said was this. He said, because we cannot see or know God experientially, there's no touching him to test him, that kind of thing. Then we basically have a 50-50 shot of him existing. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a coin flip. And the positive chances of believing he exists are phenomenally good. And the, the negative chances of believing he doesn't exist are incredibly bad. Now, the negative chances of believing he exists, they're not really so bad. And the positive gain from believing he doesn't exist, well, it's really not that good. So at the end of the day... If you're a betting man and you want to reduce risk, like you're a wise investor, well, of course, you're going to take the one with the huge upside and the small downside, and not the one with the huge downside and the small upside, which is then, therefore, you ought to believe that there is a God. Well, that's that's really clever. You know, that's a nice little trick. The thing is, it really doesn't deal with actual faith. It just makes God into an idea, a, a project in your head. And, and in this, then, it doesn't really solve the problem for the skeptic and the doubter. It, it 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 would leave him not really believing in God, but just kind of saying he does to be safe. Well, that idea is sort of what you're doing here, in a sense, right? You're, you're creating a scenario that isn't actually the real scenario in order to say, I'd rather be on the safe side of it than on the on the dangerous side of it. When you're you're not really you're, you're playing on the wrong game here. You're under the law. You believe that faith is a matter of doing the right thing. And it's not. It's a matter of God speaking. So let's 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 break this down a little more here. If the options are being a felicitously inconsistent Calvinist who takes the supper wrong, but nothing can stop Jesus from going into you, or an idolater who falsely worships bread and wine, therefore breaking the law, the commandments, I'll take the felicitously inconsistent Calvinist who takes the supper wrong. Sorry, I'm, I, I want to make sure I say this right. That's, that's dodging Jesus. When Jesus says, who do, I say, who do you say that I am? You're saying, effectively, I'm not sure, so I'm going to bury my coin in the sand. Because I don't know. And I know you are a hard man, Lord. So you're trying to, to kind of have it both ways. Now, here, here's something. So if you're taking the supper with Calvinists if, in a sacramentarian reception, it's, it's our position as Lutherans, you're not taking the supper. You're just taking bread and wine. You're actually not getting the supper at all. You've, you've lost it. Uh, you're baptized. We believe you still have that, but we don't believe you have the supper. You just got bread and wine. So yet... Yeah, Jesus is not going into you because Jesus is not there because, well, you guys don't believe Jesus is there. So how would he go into you? You're, you're, you know, it's, it's silly for you to try to argue, but he is there. Well, you don't believe he's there. Why would he be there? And if he is there, he's going into you as a judge of the community for rejecting what he says. Yeah. So it's really much safer to believe he's not there. Right? Um, versus an idolater who falsely worships bread and wine tramples the entirety of the first 
table of the law. Yeah, I like this because at least I like the honesty of this because that is what Lutherans, Romanists, and the Eastern Orthodox, that is, oh, I don't know, 90% of world Christianity, 85% of world Christianity, that is what we're doing. Yeah, we're falsely worshiping the bread and wine and trampling the entirety of the first commandment under our feet if we're wrong. Which is to say, if Jesus' words don't mean what they obviously look like they mean, right? So, so I, I love that you're taking that point of view. And yet, if it's, if it's right, you're not safe by what you're doing. Like, your, your version isn't protecting you from the judgment of denying Jesus' words. No matter how you spin it, it's, it Jesus is not going to be like, oh, your plea is that my word didn't make sense to you. Well, no, see, what it was was you resisted my word. Like, and that goes for me too, right? That's on all of us. This is just how he handles those who are outside knocking, trying to get in. You know, well, we, we wanted oil in our lamps. We went and bought it. Just now we're, we want in. I don't know you. Now, I'm not saying this is you personally, right? I'm saying that's the play the argument made. And for that reason, I, I, would, I would encourage you not to use Pascal's wager when it comes to the Lord's Supper. I would encourage you not to use Pascal's wager at all. I would encourage you to stand firm upon what you believe the Scripture says. And if you think the Scripture says, then we are falsely worshiping bread and wine, then by all means, do not join a Lutheran church. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, don't, don't pretend to have it both ways. right? Don't pretend to have it both ways. I, I, hope, I hope that helped. I don't know if I said that as clearly as I could have. Uh, the human heart is already a factory of idols. Absolutely! If sacramentarianism, oh, this is great. This is a good question. If sacramentarianism led to the errors of the Methodists and Pentecostals, did Augsburg lead to the ELCA? Or rather, they come from us, therefore we're bad, but we come from you. Um, okay, so yes and no at the same time, right? So you're, you're onto something there, and that's certainly worth paying attention to. The trick is that before you get to the the ELCA, the liberal Lutheranism being liberal Lutheranism, you already have a sacramentarian strain and element coming in. So out of <clears throat> out of Lutheran orthodoxy develops this thing called pietism, and pietism downplays the sacraments, hardcore. Uh, the external things are of, of little value. It's only really the faith within that matters. And over time, that leads to and influences, I mean, it was, it, uh, it, pietism was a direct influence on Wesley, but it didn't come from the orthodoxy of the Lord's Supper. It came from sacramentarianism that had already made its way into the Lutheran territories, right? And, and from the beginning, the Lutherans are fighting against sacramentarianism. The whole point of the Book of Concord and the formula is that they have to distinguish themselves from the crypto-Calvinists who want to be sacramentarians, and that's in their region, right? So my argument is not that uh, if anything comes from you, it's therefore your fault, right? My argument is that if it is a direct result of your thinking that someone thinks something else, like it, they are in the logical conclusion and you're in a felicitous inconsistency denying the logical conclusion, then you should go back to the root issue and fix that equation rather than try to claim that you're not really on the same you know, line of math problem as it works itself out through history. And so, yes, you can absolutely blame modern-day progressive liberal Lutheranism on the pietists move away from the centrality of the word is understandable and the sacrament is outside of you. I think you can. But then it's still being blamed on sacramentarianism, and it's still 
the same communion you're in. Because the thing is, <laughs> the liberal Lutherans will commune with anybody. So they're actually not Lutheran at all, right? So you can't say, well, they're Lutheran because they, they're not a Lutheran communion. And that's my whole argument, right? My argument is that who you will commune with distinguishes how unified you really are. And so when the ELCA and the PCUSA and then the RCA are all willing to like have their members commune with each other, all the, and then all the way over to the Episcopalians and, and whatnot, well, hey, you are that one Protestant body, which is effectively sacramentarian. So it's, it is still a sacramentarian substance that leads to these things. And I would say then it's not the Lutheran Orthodox view of the supper, uh, which would, would, it, well, doesn't lead to these things. It's, it, it is only after that is rejected that these things spring up within what are externally Lutheran churches, right? Um, I, th- I think I said that well, uh, if that doesn't make sense. Uh, yeah, uh, you come from me. No, see, see, no lie comes from truth, but more lies come from lies. And so if you've got the truth and someone rejects it and creates a new lie, that's not the truth's fault. But if there is a lie and it continues, well, then that's the same lie. Well, that's not fair. You're just asserting it. No, I'm not just asserting it. The lie of sacramentarianism is that is does not mean is. And therefore, that verse in the Bible doesn't mean what it looks like, what a child would think when they read it. And so therefore, I get to go to that verse and change it from what it means. And that move intellectually can be used on more than just that verse. 24-hour days, man. 24-hour days. Same argument. Marriage, same argument. But if is don't mean is, well, who knows, right? Who knows? Uh, on fellowship, we, we fence the table too. Oh, okay, so this is good. Uh, practicing close communion, and we don't do it by an institutional class on Wednesday night with Jesus trivia. I'm with you on that one, man. Uh, but, but by examining the person individually having discipleship. So good. That's good. That's really weird to practice close communion as a Calvinist group. Um my, my concern there, I suppose, would be that it's really based upon uh, ye, the law at a certain point uh, as opposed to faith. But, but uh, good for you. You're, you're doing the right thing. So I like this. But then, so in practicing closed communion as a Calvinist congregation, how do you do it with visitors, uh, with those from the church body? How does that work out? I mean, I'd, it really shouldn't just be Jesus trivia class on Wednesday night. Now you remember, I'm, I'm fully with you on that, especially since they don't even learn the trivia. They just sit in the class, right? So, so <laughs> um, that, that's a real issue. But see, that's not our theology. Our theology, our, our, our knowing God, our, our official position doesn't say do it that way. It says examine and absolve, pastoral care, shepherd of souls. Right? So just because we're practicing one thing doesn't mean that's what we believe. Um, although it does become what we believe and you can separate yourself from what you claim you believe by the practice. Uh, let's see. You say that we have the freedom to take and leave parts of the confessions and that's a bad thing. I deny the writers of the confessions were human, just like Luther and Calvin. Uh, they erred because they must naturally. So you're, (laughs) that's interesting. So it's impossible to rightly confess the scriptures is what that you just said. Um, we are to judge all and hold fast to that, which is true. We cannot take or leave the Bible, but we can see what parts of the confessions comport therewith. Yeah, right. So what you're saying is there is never an ability to actually repeat what the Bible says because we have sinned, therefore we must sin. And therefore there will always be lies in everything we say. That's the position you've just taken. 
And my position would be that the Word of God, the Pentecostal, the true Pentecostal Word of God is so powerful that we can actually repeat it without ruining it. And that's what we as Lutherans believe happened with the Book of Concord texts, right? We believe it happened with the creeds as well. Uh, And so, yeah, it's written by men and they must naturally err, but they did not err there. And the problem with the Reformed confessions is, as you just said, well, they, they got errors in them. So, so it's hard to unify around them, isn't it then, right? If they've got errors in them. Uh, so I love it. I love it. I love this dialogue. I hope you're taking this all well, because I, I, I think this is great. Uh, if you ignore everything else above, that's fine. Ah, not ignoring you. Uh, this is the thought I've been having for some time. I fear it may be heretical. Help me, please. I affirm that everyone is heterodox at best, though there are branches that are at least trying to be orthodox. Now, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Everybody ever is heterodox? Like every gathering of Christians ever has false teaching? Um, or every individual is heterodox? Uh, there are branches that are at least trying to be orthodox. What does it mean to be heterodox or orthodox? The word right praise and, and bent or, or other or different praise. Really? I mean, yes, we're all sinners. But I mean, is Jesus' word incapable of being true? Is our sin greater than his truth? Because I'm pretty convinced that the true Pentecostal gospel, I'm not talking about the churches out there calling themselves Pentecostal, I'm talking about Acts chapter 2. I'm pretty convinced that that word is sufficient to break our minds and come back out of our mouths, orthodox still. That that's what it means to have the Spirit, is to be able to rightly confess the Scriptures. In my personal life, do I have the danger of heterodoxy every day, every morning? Absolutely. And as bodies, are we guaranteed that God's just going to keep us orthodox? No, we're only orthodox insofar as we retain the substance of what the scriptures say. But but to affirm that we can only ever be heterodox? See, that just sounds like Calvinism to me then. That's exactly what you must do if is can't mean is. So it's it, this is still a, a direct connection of, this, of the, the, the groundwork level assumption <clears throat> that you're trying to defend trying to defend it because you don't like it, and it's leading to much deeper issues, like that you don't believe orthodoxy is possible, that you don't believe the truth is possible. What do you do with, what do you do with test the spirits? What do you do with build on the firm foundation? What do you do with once for all deliver to the saints? You're saying, well, we, we go back to that. Yeah, but then you can't because you can't ever talk about it. So you can't ever share it. It's just you and your Bible which is going to be more heterodox than, than you want to believe. Some may be as close to that impossible target as you. I really thank you for that very kind statement. You're so nice. I mean, I'm, really, I'm not being snarky. I really mean it. Like, you, like you're going to say everyone in the world's heterodox, but, but Pastor Fisk, you're closer to orthodox than a lot of other people. That's, that's, that's flattery. You're getting to me. You know, I'm blushing. That's nice. Um, I, I, I don't claim to be. I just really, really want this to be that. I, I am not orthodox because I am orthodox. I am not close to orthodox and barely heterodox because I am close to orthodox and barely heterodox. The word of God is sufficient. The truth of the scriptures is sufficient. The Lutheran confessions happen to believe that and confess that and don't get in the way of it, which is a really nice thing. They're powerful for that reason. But that is all built upon, reliant upon the substance of the scriptures themselves. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, he's not speaking metaphorically. The truth that he is is substantial. Enters you via the spirit according to the word. Renews your mind as itself, creative word, the same one by which the heavens were made and comes out again and is not heterodox, but is his 
straight praise through the cross to the Father on your behalf. In your life experienced, subjectively justifying you, because that exists too. The experience of being justified by his words. Huh? It ain't, it ain't a matter of just my happening to pay attention more. Uh, you like what I say, then study the formula of Concord, not for what it says, but how it gets there. Because that's it, man. The practice of orthodoxy is how you get there. Ah, I submit, and maybe this is just optimistic 22-year-old no gray hair nonsense. I'll read without flesh next year. Yes! Definitely got to read that book because, well, I just, you know, I've been arguing it against you uh, directly. But, um, yeah, I, I would hope that as a sacramentarian, even if you read it, it would just make you a better sacramentarian because it'll tell you all the best arguments against your position and give you all the things you need to, you know, um, try to find a way to get out of <laughs> uh, with backflips and whatnot. Uh, 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 I'll submit that orthodoxy isn't a knife edge. Um, hmm. uh, narrow is the gate that leads to life. True. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. True. Orthodoxy is a narrow gate, a narrow path. True. Not one so narrow that two or three felicity inconsistent people can't walk abreast. True. They can keep each other out of the weeds as they walk side by side. How? Not with their heterodoxy, but with the orthodoxy that's under the heterodoxy, right? So heterodoxy, we use that word because we believe there's some orthodoxy there. It isn't all gone yet. But if you're using the heterodoxy as the substance of your defense system, you're already in the weeds. And it won't be long until you forget what the path looks like. And by long, I mean generations. So I'm not sure your parable works so well. Um, uh, guided by word and spirit. See, how can you be guided by the word if your heterodoxy, in fact, takes you away from the word? And once you started chopping it off, in order to keep it chopped off, you've got to chop off other words. It's just the way it works. Eventually, you're removing and removing and removing. And eventually, what gets removed is the gospel. So that what remains is some law that you're trying to justify yourself with, which, that would be my worry for you here, man. Throughout this conversation, you are, you are leaning on a need to be right. Versus standing upon God's just being right on your behalf. This will get misinterpreted as I just want to open up all gates and do... No, I don't think that at all. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, what I think you said. Uh, the thing is, I don't think a line is able to be drawn. See, yeah, and that's just it. So what you're saying is, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And on this issue, the Lord's Supper, the heartbeat of the church, you say, I'm not sure Jesus said anything. Why did, Why on earth? I got a whole chapter on this in the book. Do you know that if, if you're right about that, Jesus is the reason the church is divided? And it's because he's an idiot? That he was so dumb, so unable to make use of his eternal foresight and see all the havoc his words were cause, would cause, that he, he did not like willfully had to not explain them because he could have and he should have. Either that or the apostles are morons and didn't write down what he said to write, at which case you have the argument against scripture being inerrant, which by the way, again, is a sacramentarian substantial argument. It all comes out of is is not is. Ultimately, it's Jesus' fault we're divided unless there were no other way for him to say what he said more clearly than he did. 
a line must be drawn when Jesus speaks. You either say, Amen, or you say, I'm not so sure, Jesus. And when you say, I'm not so sure, Jesus, he says, get behind me, Satan. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love you anymore, because he said that to Peter, he used to love Peter much. I say you're wrong about things, and you say I'm wrong about things, but we can both recognize that we have our foundation as the Word of God. I believe we both want to. I do not believe your position on the supper has your foundation in the Word of God at all. And I think you should believe the same about mine. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians. It doesn't mean that we don't both strive for orthodoxy. It doesn't mean that we don't both love the scriptures as a concept and hunger for them to be our solution. But on this particular issue, which is no small corner, we're not we're not talking about the, the patronage of Zerubbabel at the moment. We're talking about the, the last will and testament of our God. We do not both have the foundation as the word of God at this moment. One of us is wrong. Can we both not be convinced in our own mind and charitably fight and argue and sharp one another? Well, we should both be convinced in our own mind and fight charitably and argue. Absolutely. That doesn't, that doesn't make it like, therefore, we're both right, or therefore, it's okay for the lie of the devil to be between us. It's the lie of the devil. If, if, if Jesus said something, and only you know, we, we each uh, disagree about what it means, and it's like, but he really said something true... One of us believes a lie, and, and the lies don't come from Jesus or God, and he doesn't, he doesn't have mercy on the lies. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he, he, <laughs> the lies are always from the devil. And so we should fear this di- disagreement. We should certainly fight charitably, recognizing that we are both Christians. We both believe Jesus is risen from the dead. But one of us is heterodox on this and one of us is not. There's no middle ground. There's no he's sometimes there, he's sometimes not, or he's maybe there, he's maybe not. Either he's there or he's not. And the one of us that's wrong about that is a great danger to the church in our teaching, which does not mean we're not saved, right? So you don't don't hear it that way, right? Uh, It means, however, that we might be starving or starving others. Yeah? Good stuff. I really appreciate this. Um, oh, by the way, in, in this conversation, somebody had, had pointed out to me, oh, I wanted to go back to the, to this while I, while I talked, uh, someone pointed out to me, uh, in, in, in response to all this stuff, you know, have you checked out Kevin DeYoung? It's a whole different kind of Calvinism. And it's like, oh, it's so cute. Um, uh, there is a whole video out there, uh, DeYoung, DeRestless and DeReformed. It's one of my best performing ones ever. Uh, yeah, checked it out. And it's amazing. It's been a while, but it's amazing if I, if I recall, like part of the issue is like, why are you not including Lutherans in the conversation? If 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 it really is this new thing, we're going to rethink everything. Why are there no Lutherans represented? Why why don't we have a voice at that table? Um, and when people ask, well, why aren't you guys out there? You don't want us out there. The Reform don't want us at the table. You keep us away from the table, as well. You should, I suppose, if you really believe what you believe about uh, about our heterodoxy. All right, so let's see. We got we got a couple more here. That one was long. Oh, we got to do this one though. This is huge. Um, so, can I? I'm going to go back to this here. Let's go back here. Uh, I don't know when this came out, but there was a, a paper released in this. Actually, this is just uh, the, the, the paper itself. I guess it was released in a journal somewhere. And uh, you can find this. You can see the website up here, uh, lsfm.global. I, I don't know much about that. But this is a document... Uh, from the district president of of the Texas district in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and it is a a proposal for change leading to mission. Yeah, go figure. 
Um, and it, it, it has some interesting issues with it. I'm not really wanting to bash on anybody, but I, I, think, I think it's very important to notice a couple of things about this theologically. One is that it implies the need for a new church body. Like, it, it claims that perhaps the reason we don't have successful Missouri Synod mission work is that we need a new church body, a different one, which, well, let's just say, if there are two sides fighting for power in the Missouri Synod, this is the side that's not in power right now. Let's just say it that way. So it's interesting that you would release a public paper, those of you who are in support of PLI and all those kinds of things, it's interesting that you would release a public paper that has in its kind of embryo division, right? Like, like maybe the answers divide. Why would you not do that and just say that's the answer? That's what I don't get. Like, I, I seriously, I've said this before. I don't know if I've ever said it publicly and loud enough, but I'll stand by it. If the division in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on either side of our, whatever we call them, aisle, that we keep fighting over is the reason our conventions are such a nonsensical panoply of of propaganda, if we really are divided enough that we need to vote that way against each other, then we're divided enough to not be in the same body. The only problem is we've never had the patience to sit down and ask, what is the division about? What is the substantial reason, the theological, dogmatic reason? Why are we, why are we divided? And I would contest that I mean, study this, figure it out on your own. But I would contest that we're divided because it's it is about the sacrament, and that the, um, for lack of a better pejorative phrase, the left LCMS, which is not nothing like the left in in the world, they're they're pro life and all this kind of stuff, but they're they're not pro liturgy. I would contest that the left has a very subtle sacramentarian assumption at heart. Now, there's a lot of individuals in, in that group that, that don't, but they don't see that adopting a sacramentarian practice will lead your people to sacramentarian thought, even though you personally don't have it. And even though you personally preach against it, you cannot, um, you cannot do certain things without becoming the thing you're doing. Now, that's my view. I'd love to get to a table politically to talk about this with honest movement toward uh, a reconciled and or honestly divided body. Well, as opposed to some sort of like buried little comment down in a paper about how we just need to love the lost more and all this kind of stuff. So that, that's the first thing to notice. The second thing comes right out of that though. So in this paper, which, I mean, if you look through this thing, he's a good looking guy. Um, uh, it's got lots of Bible verse references and, um, uh, lots of history and connection point, lots of study here, right? Uh, uh, talking about challenging times, looking at numbers, trying to put it all together, uh, drawing a line through why was mission working once, why was it not? Here's some proposed things that would have to happen. Uh, here's some more proposed things that would have to happen. Here's here's the thing that, that gets to me in this. And I don't know that this is like a universal argument, but I think it's worth paying attention to. In the book, um, uh, oh, now I'm going to lose the book. I just finished reading it. Uh, I want to read it. 
right? I talked to you guys already about this. It's the one from, uh, oh, brain, you just left me in the dust. Where did you go? Black Swan's the second one he wrote. Uh, Fooled by Randomness is the first one he wrote. And the most recent one is Skin in the Game. There you go. That's it. It's really an interesting book, Skin in the Game. He makes lots of comments in this book. Economics philosophy textbook. It's it's marvelously challenging to, uh, in, in a good way to read. It will make you rethink a lot of assumptions. I'm going to go back and read the other ones first and then come back and finish with, with this one. Um, so you might want, if you're going to go pick it up, pick up Fooled by Randomness first. But he throws a lot of bombs out there to, to wrestle with in your head. But they're largely based upon the principles he's laid down already. And one of the principles that he lays down is that truth is truth is simple. Physics is simple. Now, you get into the quantum stuff and we say it's not simple. Well, we just don't understand it. But it's not that tough. You drop the apple, it falls, right? So you can sit there and you can try to explain it and get all crazy, right? But the actual result is simple. And so if you find yourself trying to answer a, a problem, trying to find a solution to something that you think is wrong, and you end up writing like a, a physics, quantum physics textbook to explain it, you might be missing the point. Right? You, you might be overcomplicating it. You might, you might only be demonstrating just how little you do understand it. Like if you can't explain it quickly and easily, like me right now, <laughs> then you probably don't actually understand it at all. Now, there's, there's a limitation to this argument, but if, if the real goal here is to reignite a gospel movement, right, that's what this thing says, why is that so hard? Why does that require so much intellectual effort to figure it out when originally they just talked and it happened? And that's kind of the promise. You just talk and it'll happen. So, so, so what's, what are you trying to find that you don't have? And the assumption is that you have the gospel. I, I talked about this recently too, right? Like the assumption is that you've got nothing to repent of. Well, we're fine. We've got the gospel just fine. But now we've got to figure out how to make it work. Well, that, that's an interesting assumption. That's an interesting assumption, right? Now, I'm with you though. I mean, I totally... Ooh, I just spiked a little there. I totally turn that down. I totally want the gospel that we have to be louder than it is in this country. Oh my goodness. Totally want it. And I think there's a lot of things that need to be done to make that happen. But I don't think it has to be complex. Like it's not like a philosophical idea, right? It's not something we have to figure out. Like we have it. And then Follow this one with me, right? So then your solution is a new church body. So your solution is, you know, somehow we've got to get more people to believe in Jesus. And so what we need to make this happen is more bureaucracy. That'll do it. Because the current bureaucracy, it's bureaucracy and we don't like it. So let's make some more bureaucracy. That'll fix it. Can you see that? I'm not, who, I forgot his name already. Michael, if you ever end up watching this, I really, I'm not mad at you. And this is not a politically oriented commentary. I really, I really want you to understand this. This, this point particularly, bureaucracy is not the answer. You don't make a movement with bureaucracy. 
And that's why writing a paper in a journal is not the answer either. You don't, you don't start movements by writing papers in journals. You don't start movements by having uh, political conferences. You don't start movements by having pastors' conferences. Those aren't movements, right? Movements are a bit more spontaneous and certainly not over-intellectualized. There's, cert- there's going to, I mean, I've gotten comments in the last couple of weeks. Oh, you're thinking too hard about these things, Pastor Fisk. I'm sorry. Yeah, we're going to, I'm going to think hard about things. I'm going to say it out loud. Fine. But I'm not going to pretend for a moment that the complexity of my own thought is the thing that's going to make anything happen. What'll make it happen is the gospel of Jesus Christ being real and true and there and spoken and repeated and confessed and sung and shared and written, right? And shown. That's what'll make it happen. And if you think you need to build a whole new church body to make that happen, then you, you won't, it won't happen by the time you get there. It won't happen. If you can't do it exactly where you are right now, the answer is not going to be more of us. It's never going to be more of us. And although, ha, final thought, it is stunning to me, absolutely theologically stunning, that you can take, be fruitful and multiply, and turn it into a mandate for the growth of the church and never once mention the demographic destruction of our church body through birth control. That is, is beyond argument. That from the adoption of birth control on, we have ceased to grow as a body because we've ceased to have kids. And while I'm never going to say that mission should only happen through having kids, it's stunning that you would take the texts about having kids and apply them to mission while never mentioning having kids. That is, that is really, really a stunning thing to me. Lethargy and multiplication has gripped the American church. Church planning in the U.S. will need to double or triple from current rates to address population growth anticipated. Yeah, right. Population growth is population decline, and we do need to address it um, in more ways than one. It's stunning to me how how it's a blind spot, my friend. So it's, it's a big blind spot. Um, all right, so that's two of three, uh, three of four. I mean, we got one more, and then we're gonna jump into the sidebar here. What time we got? How long? Oh, we're doing okay. So, um, somebody who had been uh, uh, watching the live stream of the Christmas Eve service from St. Paul here in Rockford. Sorry, I'm going to drink more coffee and burp. I asked this question. Um, I'm interested in the candles beside the lectern. Was that just for Christmas Eve to assist in low light readability, or is there a liturgical explanation and significance? Also, I like extending the candlelight portion of the service through the singing of the two hymns. Yeah, yeah. It's so awesome. Why would you not do more of it, right? Uh, there was no joy to the world. Were you holding that back to use during your Christmas Day service? If so, I think it's a great idea. You want joy to the world, come back in the morning and sing it. So last one first. Uh, we, no, uh, we sang joy to the world at the other Christmas Eve service, and they had sung it the week before at the midweek service. So I have been pushing... Uh, for Advent being Advent, and they've taken a lot of that from me, but they have a, a midweek third Wednesday in Advent service called Advent by Candlelight that uh, everyone really wants Christmas there. And part of it's because they all travel for Christmas. So for many of them, it is their Christmas as a congregation. In fact, the attendance is better there uh, than at any other service over the, over the Christmas period. And, and so they wanted to sing Joy to the World then. So I didn't want to overdo Joy to the World. We did do it at, at the other Christmas Eve service. However, your, your point, though, you, you want that song come back tomorrow? Uh, I, I do that every year with, um, 
O come all ye faithful. Uh, Because the song's, it's about, you know, this blessed morning, right? Like singing that at 11 o'clock at night doesn't work so hot. So, so there is that for sure. Yes. Um, In terms of the candles beside the lectern, here's what happened. So we took two congregational buildings, both with sanctuaries and had to combine them. And we wanted to keep the nicest stuff. And most of it is actually not in the best shape. A lot of it's not been really well cared for or just been, I should say, just been ignored. Like it was just forgotten to be paid attention to for a while. In any case, so we had a number of pieces to make use of, and there were these two candles that stood beside the altar in the current sanctuary on the side of it, and formerly basically the altar candles, but not on it, just beside it on these big stands. And they're they're not bad. I mean, they're good candles. They're, you know, they're they're a little dated looking with the you know the wood paneling on the on the base. <laughs> it's a little odd looking, um, but they're they're nice big strong candles. And so I was, I was like, well, we can just put these in a garage, right? Uh, or well, we can use them. Where can we use them? Well, there's really two clear places to put them in the sanctuary. One would be beside the lectern and one would be beside the pulpit. Why would you do that? To show that the light of the world is coming from these places, from the word of God. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that idea at, at all. In fact, I believe there is some precedent for it. I feel like if you visit the seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, you'll see that they have candles on either side of both don't don't quote me, but both pulpit and lectern. Well, we don't have it on both. We only had two, not four, and I had to decide where to put it. And then th- that was sort of the, the gambit here. And what I did, and I told the people this when I did is, well, we're going to put it by the lectern, even though it could go by both, and we're going to do that to demonstrate something, that we know the Word of God's there, and we don't know it's in the pulpit until the guy talks. Right? Uh, I didn't want them to see me as the light. I wanted them to see the scriptures of the light. So we put it there, uh, although it could be in both places, to demonstrate how the light should come from the lectern to the pulpit to the people. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know what the future of that is. That was sort of like, a, we've got this piece. Let's make sure we use it. Uh, we are in need of replacing something, so maybe that'll change. I don't know. But that is what it is. All right. So can I get back to... How do I... Oh, Ecamm, here we go again. Distracting me. There we go. Get that back. I can drag and drop some comments in. We have remaining here, it is what, 8.05. We have uh, 40 minutes. I will try to get into some comments on the side um, by scrolling back, see what you guys have been talking about. Most of it looks like a discussion with no con- content at the moment. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, gospel divide. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, so the LCM grew by some, like 70% before birth control. You know, there's a, there's a documentary out there. There's two of them actually, uh, called the population bomb and the population. It's not myth population bomb, demographic bomb. It's called the demographic bomb and demographic winter. And it's really interesting that no, 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 it's not that there's a, there's a documentary on the birth control pill. That's where that one's from. And I don't know, I'd have to go really looking for this one. I'm sure there's more than one. Um, But uh, in this documentary on the pill made by not Lutherans, Christians who are concerned about what the pill has done to American Christianity in terms of our numbers and our practice and our piety. In this documentary that they're making about it, the poster boy for the change is not just the LCMS, it's LCMS pastors' families. Like they track, these people have no business like talking about the LCMS in any other corner of their life as they make movies, right? 
And yet when they went and looked for like the, the worst example they could find of how, how detrimental the pill has been, the, it's been most detrimental in American Christianity to LCMS pastors, families. That's, that's just some irony right there. That's what I think. That's some real irony. And that we sit here and we're like, oh, it's fine. Uh, is it? Is it? Uh, there's a gentleman out there named Jordan Harbinger. I don't know if you know him. He he was a big part of the Art of Charm podcast, which I think is still there. But he's also launched his own podcast now. I don't I don't always really like everything Jordan says, and I I don't find him that entertaining. He seems like a nice guy. Um, there are some people who really like him a lot, obviously, uh, and he gets he gets pretty powerful guests on him. He just had one with uh, Dennis Rodman, which oh that's, that was interesting. Um, anyway, uh, but he's got several. Several in a row on the birth control pill. He's not a fan. He's not a Christian. He's just dealing with the science. And so, I mean, that we that we don't even have the capacity to like consider that thought in the Missouri Senate because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna knee jerk react. Wait, we can't be wrong. That would mean we were wrong. Uh, that tells you how little grace we have. If every time we face the potential that we maybe did 40 years of damage to ourselves by doing something stupid, that we just, we, we have to justify it, that, that's its own condemnation right there. So, you know, uh, the issue of, of birth control as a concept, we'll come back to this here again, uh, it's just not as simple as, as we want to think it is when we argue freedom and stewardship, Right? It's just not that simple, especially when you get into the chemicals, what they do to the body, uh, the, the impact it has on a woman's health over a lifetime, connections to other kinds of diseases and side effects. Like, why is that not something we're allowed to talk about? Why is it wrong to talk about that now? Oh, it's wrong because it gives you a guilty conscience and you don't want that there. Well, why? If you have a guilty conscience, don't you have a salve to put on it named Jesus? Yeah, but then you'd have to admit you were wrong. Oh, and we don't want to do that. See? And, and so that's that's the issue. That's the issue. Uh, and then that we would like, I don't know why this is auto, uh, focusing. I turned that off. That's frustrating. Look, manual, leave it manual. Jeez. Um, that we could possibly look at the current state of marriage and all, and we sit there and we point our fingers at, at Fox News's portrayal of Whatever's going on at that parade over there. Oh, those people. So evil. It is. And it's the same train. It, it, it's the same train. And so, you know, when you're lying face down in the muck, you really don't have a place to see clearly the stick in your brother's eye very well. Um, yeah. It's tough. It's tough. It's not a law. Having children is not a do it or you're not a Christian. It's a gift and we've rejected the gift. And now we're busy trying to justify our rejection of the gift. And it's, it, it is its own curse that we can't even, we can't even just rejoice in the possibility anymore. It's, it's, it's really something. Um, uh, yeah, thanks. That didn't really have any content. Um, all conferences are movements, just more the bowel kind. Yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with the conference per se, but I find it fascinating that whenever the LCMS has a group of people that want to do something, their answer is, let's have a conference. <laughs> and and I want one too. I want a mad Christian conference, but I not just to sit around and talk. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Um, 
what does it mean to love the laws? How do they define love in that sense? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I didn't read the document that closely, Cody. I read it enough to kind of see like, okay, here's the big propositions. And it's just the same old thing. Like on, on the left in the LCMS, you have this, this desire to have mission and that that's kind of the, um, the orienting factor in everything that they do or say they want to do. Uh, the orienting factor is there are people who are not saved and we must save them. Uh, there's a, there's a better word for that, uh, in, in, in classical thought It's called the, oh, come on now, Jonathan material principle. There we go. Oh, I love this old, old, that old language. The material principle, the, the, the defining thought is people not saved must save. The problem is that that's a Pelagian thought. Okay, so this is this is anthropology here. Those people must be saved. We must save them. That would be the same as I must be saved. Therefore, I must make a decision for Jesus. Right. So at the ground level, that assumption, that false anthropology from Finney, it comes from Charles Finney, uh, at least in, in the intellectual strain of American thought, thought, they insert that into their Lutheranism on the ground. And over time, what it does is it destroys everything, particularly the sacrament and what Orthodox Lutheranism does is, is it its central driving thought is those people are justified by grace as a gift in Jesus alone, who just happens to be the Lord's Supper. <laughs> yeah. And if there's anywhere we've been heterodox as the Missouri Synod, it's been the removal of the Lord's Supper from the overall proclamation. Uh, but it's still been there under underground, at least. Uh, yeah. Uh, Brian says, uh, I like the ascension of Jesus makes the church anti-fragile. Yeah, that's good. Where did we say this? I don't remember saying this. Who said this? What are we talking about? Um, oh, Brian's been talking. Have you been running my show while I talk, Brian? That's funny. All right. Uh, how else would you spell Fisk? What on earth are you guys doing? It's like you're not even here. Um, mm -mm. Let's see. Actor C, Methodists say they are splitting... Oh yeah, right. So oh man. So we're 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 we were looking at a, a lease in the area, kind of thinking about it a little bit. It's too expensive. Um but uh the the gentleman who owned the building, uh he he's from Texas and he's a UMC Methodist and really likes his uh progressive, you know, um LBGT vicars and whatnot. But he was a nice man. We had a great conversation and he was sharing with, you know, the the split, the the Methodist split that's coming. And all based upon those those ruddy Africans, you know, uh, how dare they? Um, and I kind of pointed out to him, I was like, you know, it's kind of funny. When, when we Lutherans did mission like in Africa, we let them have their own church body. And, and you guys didn't. That was an interesting move. That was like a colonial move, wasn't it? And now it's kind of backfiring, right? And he just kind of looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I hate to drop the post-colonialism thing on you because I know that's like what you get preached about, but it's your own fault. Um, and, th and I didn't say, I didn't say, you know, thank God. Uh, but, it, you know, what will happen? Because in that, in that body, everything's owned by the body. So when you leave, the building would have to stay in theory. I wonder if, if the whites can, uh, can be racist enough and, and uh, selfish enough to find some loopholes and get themselves out of that. And that's awful. I mean, it really is. It's, it's, so the very body that's like all anti-racism, right? And they're going to do it. They're going to be very racist over their LGBT agenda 
which is not in line with their historic position. Uh, it'd be fascinating to see what happens. And yeah, because when you're a dying church body, an old liberal, wealthy, dying church body, unable to grow your numbers via birth or conversion to real ideas, the answer is more bureaucracy. What, you know, definitely. We definitely need another big building with people at desks. That'll, that'll get them to come. Oh my goodness. Heaven help all of us. Um, wait, why do I spell my name incorrectly? I don't even know what that means. Oh, oh, Wolfmuller. Yeah, he does. Okay, never mind. Yeah, what, what Wolfmuller like hijacked my show? What are you doing? Oh, Talib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's the name of that guy that wrote the book. Um, but nobody. All right, I'm not going to go back further. Is there any actual questions? Do you want me? Or is, is, is Brian just everything for you? My chop liver over here? Come on. Um, let's see. Is Pastor Wolfmuller's church in Austin? Look at this. Don't you understand that Brian and I, though we love each other, do have an actual to the death like battle going on for who's cooler? And it has everything to do with how often you talk about us. And so when you do this, you feed him. You feed him. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's so fun. Um, yeah, he's better than me. No question. So is his, is his church in Austin? Yes. Uh, his church is in Austin, which is cool, which is actually where that guy from Texas was from Austin. And he knew the church. Um, and they have like a five-story steeple, uh, Brian's church, which is pretty cool. All right. So I'm not seeing any questions over here in the sidebar. You guys are just kind of doing whatever. Um, right. So uh, Mom Monster says, thank you, Pastor Fizz. It's good even if you don't get to our questions. Uh, look forward to the cuts. Yeah. But I need, I, I, I'm trying to get to your questions. Give me some. Give me some. Uh, da, 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 da. Can you address, okay, here we go. A question. Can you address this argument? While the bread and wine may have become Jesus when he said it, this does not mean that when we, a sinful human, do it, it becomes his body. At best, we can only mimic it. Okay, again, it's the same answer that I gave to the other gentleman. What you're saying is that, therefore, there is no truth. I mean, I, I know I just made like a really big intuitive leap. So ponder it. If the best we can do is sinfully, fallenly, imperfectly mimic Jesus, then Christianity is a law first, and you can't keep it second. End of end game. Over. Checkmate. Done. That's it. I, mean, I could say a lot of other stuff to try to tinker with that, but that's it. If Jesus' words were only powerful when Jesus spoke them, we are all in our sins. I, I don't want to say more than that, because that's just it. You just got to ponder that one a long time. Sit on that one. Because you're, you're saying there is no truth now. There is only us. And that God is not powerful enough to be true in our midst. And I would contest that that is the very opposite of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is that he's absolutely powerful enough to redeem sinners with words, words that never change, words that are the same yesterday, today, forever, words that are the power of creation, words that are the Holy Spirit, that he's, he is in, with, under, as, speaker of these words. So when Jesus was there and he said, do this in remembrance of me, we should take that to mean he wanted us to keep doing it. And when we do it, 
we say what he said, we should believe what he said. And of course, notice how the argument is not based on a text. I just got to point it out. It's never a text. When you argue against the Lord's Supper, when you argue against baptism from a sacramentarian point of view, you never bring a text. You bring reason every time. When you take all the texts that are there, and there's only like seven on the Lord's Supper, but when you take them all, what I'm saying is what they say. I'm saying it because it is what they say. They don't say more. They don't say less. They say this is. They say it is a communion, a fellowship, a koinonia in the flesh and blood of Jesus. They say it's real food and real drink that is his flesh and blood. And you're going to come up with all these human reasons of why it can't be. And now, so you've moved from, you know, the first argument is usually that Jesus is a man and therefore it can't, you know, his humanity can't do it. But now it's, we are sinful men and therefore we cannot. Okay. At that moment, thereby there is no truth. Only Jesus spoke truth. We have it written down in the Bible, but none of us can actually say it again. Because we're sinful. And as soon as we say it, it's not true anymore. And thereby, you are making sin more powerful than God. It's a fascinating move. That, you be, that you're, you're, you're so in need of defending your intellect that you would make your sin more powerful than God's mercy. That's huge. It's the law. It crushes. It crushes. Mm-mm-mm. What's this here? His move is to claim there is no truth and or the ability to apprehend it to then go ahead and blast Lutheranism. Well, if you're talking about the guy in the letter, I don't think he's blasting us. I think he's really wrestling with the ideas, you know, to be fair. Um, and I don't think he thinks there is no truth. I'm trying to point out that his argument is being influenced by that point of view. Um, Darth Mick, I agree. I keep trying to catch up on sermons and Bible classes and they turn private disappear. <laughs> um... So when, when something turns private or disappears, it's usually, there aren't that many, really? It's happened like twice. Um, it means something happened in that particular video that I don't think um, is publicly true, right? So on Christmas morning, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a good sermon, but I said something really, really not true. I talked about Judah and his brothers and his mom wrongly, just in terms of historically. And it's not that big a deal. Like my people aren't going to hell and I know what I did wrong now, right? But to just leave that out there for in perpetuity on on the internet, that doesn't help us, right? And to go and edit it in YouTube, I can't. I can't. I mean, the time just to do that is is just... I don't, and as much as I'm trying to build helpers, like there's just no system to get that done. So I take it down so I don't confuse people and I don't give them ammo to attack us with, right? Um, and I think that happened one other time with a with a an evening study. So, <clears throat> um, yeah. So so, yeah. And you're gonna stop supporting me. The please understand that I'm only taking stuff down when I think it's wrong. And I do not want what's wrong hanging out there. 
Um, and if there were a massive multi-million dollar corporation that I just happened to privately own and I could say, I am Donald Trump, do this for me, and, you know, then I'd have somebody fix it for me. But we are where we are. And so you just got to deal with, you know, every every three months, one video doesn't stay up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I do make errors from time to time and I'd rather not leave them in the public sphere. Yeah. So I hope that helps with that. Uh, there is no, there is nothing that you don't get as a Patreon supporter that is not out there for everybody. I, I, I do not, by and large, I do not hide anything from anybody. Right. So if you, meaning, meaning that like, if you're a supporter on Patreon, Patreon, you're not getting more stuff. Um, there are some perks, uh, you know, some of the e the ebook stuff uh, as PDFs has gone out and things like that. But um, those are also available to other people. They're not they're not not available, right? Um, and the reason for that is because the whole point of this, the whole reason you would support me on Patreon, is to get this stuff out there to people. That's that's the whole point, right? The point is not to have it be a hidden content that you pay for. So, um, yeah. So, so if, if something gets taken down, um, it's not, it's not going anywhere else. If that makes sense. Uh, Uh, as to length, I have two hours of listening driving time each day. So smaller chunks are not ideal for podcasts for me, at least rather start something. And, uh, yeah, well, that's why I try to get these SM chills up, um, as podcasts, right. And this one should be, the last couple of weeks, I've been dealing with the recovery from destruction of my Mac, and I just that just hasn't happened, right? It hasn't gotten there. Uh, but the plan is to get right back into that. And, and actually, I'm adding to it. Uh, so now, I believe my Wednesday night class, the Knowing God class, that's, that's also going to be just full podcast release. So you're going to have more. You're going to have the weekly podcast. You're going to have every sermon that I do. Uh, it, it, so far, it's, it's not wrong. Uh, you're going to have the SM Chill, and you're going to have... Uh, the Knowing God course, all as pure audio on on the Rev Fisk Mad Christian podcast channel. So um, the goal is to get it to you in every format possible and then to break it down even more into other formats so people who aren't getting it can find it. Yeah. Uh, buh, 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 buh. I just backed out and came back in and they're like 23 likes. Ah, because it does good to keep track of yours in real time. Another example of how technology is good as somebody. Okay. Yep. 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 Um, 68 viewing though, we're almost up to 70 again, which is fantastic. You know, that happened last week and it really surprised me. That's that's a jump. Um, I don't know, I don't know why. Don't know why, but thank you. Let's, are there questions at the bottom now? I'm really trying to get to your questions. Uh, I always take God's word at, well, his word, this is my body. This is covenant in my blood, the covenant shed for you, as the words of institution come directly from Jesus during the Last Supper. Yeah, well, that's just it, right? That's our argument. That's the Lutheran argument. It always has been, is that he said it, and so if you're going to undo it, you need something that clearly undoes it, not just your, I don't think so. And all the arguments are always, but the reason, but the reason, but the reason. And nothing wrong with reason, provided that it is not my thoughts against God's thoughts, and I'm telling God he's wrong. <laughs> and so the only way to get to a orthodox, a biblical view of the supper is to take all the texts from the Bible actually about the supper and hold them together. And then if there's some other text in the Bible that would tell you not to come to that conclusion, well, you got to reconcile them. You don't throw it out. You find out how they go together. So, for example, breaking the first commandment by trusting in the bread, which is just a creature, right? 
Um, how do you how do you not see that as making the creature greater than the creator? And the answer is, well, first off, you're trusting in the humanity of Jesus, who is also one with us in our created flesh, and that's fascinating. You know, Jesus is eternally begotten of his Father before all worlds, worlds according to his divinity. He is not eternally begotten before all worlds according to his humanity. Yeah. And he is less than God with respect to his humanity. Yeah. Uh, and so so that changes things. You, you know, you're not escaping worshiping the creature just by getting rid of the bread and wine. You got to reckon with how does the incarnation update our understanding of God's role with his creation? It doesn't mean you worship the whole creation, uh, but it doesn't mean the whole creation is going to be made from him in the new world, right? And, and so you got that. Uh, and then that then, you know, why would this man who says this is not have the power to do just that? Uh, you, you know, you can, you can go a lot of other places too when you're dealing with, you know, imagery, the snake on the pole, look at the snake and you will live. Well, it, was, it the, was it the actual bronze that saved people? Well, yes, actually it was. But by its own power? No, by the power of the promise, the word of God attached to it. Could they abuse that eventually? Yeah, they did. Because they separated it from its institution. They separated it from what it was for. So our task with the supper is not to separate it from what it's for. And 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is pretty clear about that one, right? It should unify us in the proclamation of his death, resurrection, and return. Uh, By believing it. By believing it. Um, I don't know. More viewers cause it because it's a new year. People resolve to listen to more Red Fisk. I I doubt on New Year's Eve, people are sort of like, you know, this year I'm more Red Fisk. I I doubt that. I doubt that. Um, Ryan says, uh, interesting as we watch Illinois supporting more non-Christian values with taxpayer money. Uh, Taxpayer paid trans surgery. At what point does it become too much to support Romans 13 in mind? Well... You're not allowed to not support your government just because it's a bad government. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of the thing. When when Paul says, when Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's," we maybe underestimate how radically he was saying, "Give to the evil man what is the evil man's," because he's in charge and God put him there. He's an avenger of wrath and a minister for good. And if he's really that bad. He'll destroy himself and the system will fall, but you are still to do your duty in the system. So we don't, we don't get to pull out for that reason. Although all of this has an interesting other side when you take the constitution into, into the issue, because we're, no, we're not under a king, we're under this constitution, right? And we have these rights that we can take action on behalf of or on, because of as American citizens. And so that does allow you to like, well, move to a different state. Um, which I think that's really interesting. I, I don't think it'll happen a lot, but that was the theory is that the state's rights should be predominant so that if they had, a, if there's a bad law, you move to a state with better laws, you know, small government. Um, but that's a different issue. It is interesting to see um, Illinois dive further and further into mafia style uh, politics uh, with regard to how they're making their money and all this. Um, and, you know, talking about, Illicit substances and, uh, and and whatnot no longer being illicit. That, that's something worth looking at and discussing. Uh, but the, the end all of this is that any set of humans that get power and money are going to do stupid things with them. But insofar as they are still the authorized public office that governs an area, and until they're not, you're still under their governance. 
So if they kill you, they kill you. You say thank you. You know, can you fight back? Can you go form a militia? Well, kind of depends. Does the law say you can? <laughs> right? In uh, some places that's true. In some places it's not. And maybe you do it anyway, right? A lesser evil, that kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, that's worth pondering and, and discussing with somebody smarter than I am. Uh, Maryland Jeet Kundo says, uh, Ref Fisk, would love to hear your thoughts on Francis Chan preaching that he is coming to believe in the real presence. Really? Well, that's fascinating. What I want to know, okay, so if that's true, is he going to talk to somebody else who does already, or is he just going to kind of go on his own? Because that'll tell you a lot about where, where he is. Because if you come to the conclusion that you've been super wrong about the Bible in a very specific way for a long time, according to your tradition and your heritage and your effectively church body for a long time, you come to the conclusion that you're wrong about that and that it's right in this other way. You never go and talk to the group that said that thing the entire 500 years. I don't think you've actually come to that conclusion. I think you just got another version of it. Another version of your sacramentarianism. Um, I'm not saying you have to join us. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. You would want to talk to that person, that group. You would want to look at what they have said about this and study their documents. Go get Sasa's Lord's Supper stuff. Start reading that, right? That's what, well, the timing though, you know what? We should get him a copy of Without Flesh. I wonder if he'd look at it. I don't know. I, I don't, I mean, how, the guy's so big. He's so outside our league. I, I don't know how you would get on his radar. Um, and Brian could clip this and then like we could tag him a bunch of times. Um, God, it'd be fun to have that conversation. Uh, but this, it's a different league, my friends. We, we, we Missouri Senate Lutherans just don't, don't get it. It's a different league. They're, that's NBA. And we're like, we're not even like high school varsity state champs basketball, right? Uh, what we're doing is we're on the playground somewhere. And we're going like, ooh, schooled you. Look at me. I'm so good, right? And, and like, we're, we're not. We're just in a corner. We're just in the corner. But that's fascinating. I would want to know, is he just going to go and like assume he's going to figure it out on his own? Or is he going to talk to someone else who already believes that? Because uh, that would that would tell you a lot, I think. Huh. I wonder why he got to that position. That's interesting. I don't know a ton about Chan at all, honestly. Um, he's getting slammed. Yeah, I'm sure, because that's the only other option. Of course. Because we don't exist. Lutherans don't exist. Going Roman. Um, well, and he might. See, that would be sort of the, the tendency, by the way. The tendency would be, if you make that conversion, you do think the only option is Rome, and you actually go to Rome. Which is sad, because then you're giving up justification. Uh, he even talked about close communion. Uh, interesting. Well, I'd like to hear that, because I, I don't think I talk about it well. Um, he's getting slammed. Interesting. What do you mean I should invite him? I'm too small. He's not going to, I'm not going to register. You know how much email that guy gets? How many like walls of defense he probably has for information getting to him? You figure out how I can get information to him and we'll make it happen. But I'm not going to go bang my head against, uh, against a super pastor's, you know, barrier. All these guys, they have barriers to entry for their information because they cannot, no human can, can, can process all the information that you get publicly when you get that big. We're not there yet. We could get there someday. We're like, like, you want to talk to me directly, we're on the comments on the side, but otherwise the email's going through somewhere else. That's possible. I don't think it's likely. We're just not... <laughs> we're Lutheran. That ain't going to happen. But these guys that are up on that level, they have they have uh, handlers for their handlers. And so you figure out how to get there. Um, 
he figured out how to get there, how to get him on. I mean, I would have, I would absolutely have a conversation with him. Uh, I'd be really, because I just want to hear, I'd want to hear it from him, what his thoughts are. You know, uh, Billy Bob Joe Jr. says, uh, earlier you said the sacramentarians don't have the supper because they don't believe it. Is that receptionism? Interesting. Uh, at my church, it is taught that the words make, yes, it is not receptionism. No, that is not the idea. Excuse me. I do have a cold at the moment. Um, it is not receptionism. Got to watch my time too. Um, it is, uh, we don't really have a word for this. Uh, confessionalism, I guess, is what I would say. Yes, the words are the power which makes the supper. It is Jesus' words. Those words handled by the office, and, and, and so we could debate this, that if there is no proper office of the ministry, that is there really a supper? That debate is not one we've really allowed to have happen in in recent Lutheran minds. Excuse me. In re- recent Lutheran years. But if you go back a little further into the, the Reformation, uh, you find both sides of that. And it's, it's, um, it's just not that, uh, that clear that you don't need a pastor. Okay. But we're so, our, our Americanism is so anti-authority that we really have pushed the pastoral office to the side as an institution of Christ. And we see it more as just something that is for the good of the church. Anyhow, leaving that aside for a moment though, here's the thing. So just with the proposition that the words make the supper, the supper. The question is, well, which words? Yes, clearly the words of Scripture, okay? The words of institution. So so here I am. I'm going to speak the words of institution over bread and wine by myself in the kitchen. Is it the Lord's Supper? No. And then the office of the ministry gets in there a little bit, but who's missing? Everybody, the church, <laughs> right? So this is not a magical incantation. This is not hocus pocus, okay? Hocus corpus actually comes from. Where's an institution? So, so you got that issue. And then what if, what if I did this? What if I said, in a moment, I'm going to speak the words of Jesus that do not mean it is his body and blood. On the night he was betrayed, took it, said, this is body. After supper, took the cup, said, this is blood. Amen. Take and eat. This is not Jesus, body and blood. Which words? You have a paragraph, you have a context. How much does the paragraph impact the meaning of the words? Does it impact it so much that if then you as pastor or presider and all the people there are hearing the words, the sounds, you're hearing the sounds this is as the meaning, the words, this is not, or this symbolizes, what's the real world word? Is the real word the sound or is the real word the meaning? And if you think it's the sound, then we got to do it in Greek. We got to get, get start doing it in Greek real quick. So Pentecost again would teach us that the translation is real, and so is the meaning. So if you've managed as a group to destroy the meaning of Jesus' words of institution, even if you say them out loud, you haven't said them. You've said something different. You follow on that? I mean, it, it it's a it's a heady philosophical flip. I wouldn't call it a backflip. It, it's wrestling with, what did you say? Did you say it was his body and blood? Because if you said something else, then it's not. It's, our position is that you have what you say you have. And if you say you have the body and blood, 
then it's there, according to the words. But if you say a bunch of words that to you say it's not his body and blood, then it's not his body and blood. It's not that your faith as an individual or as a group makes it happen. The words make it happen, but you don't have the words. You have some noises that you have changed. Right? You've changed the noises to not mean what they meant when he said it. And so you don't have the words. You can hide heresy in orthodoxy by changing the meaning of words. And I know this is a postmodern kind of thing. We've only just in the last hundred years started to realize how much language can be manipulated like this. And a lot of those who understand this are evil and use it for evil. They deconstruct truth for a living and they think it's funny to ruin your faith. But that doesn't mean that the insight they're using as a first article understanding of how language works is not true. And our defense should not be to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that all words just forever mean the same thing because they obviously don't. We should grab onto this first article gift of language and how we understand it as both fallen in Babel and redeemed in Pentecost and start using it for our good. Which is to recognize we got to keep translating what we say forever. And then what we say can be, should be, the translation of the actual text of the scripture that does not change, even though our noises change. The meaning of the words is real and never goes away. And that if it does go away, it's gone. If we take it away, it's not there. It's really silly to try to say, I'm a Calvinist and I say the words, but I don't believe it's there. But you should say it's there. Or for us to say, you know, well, they say words that don't mean it's there, but it's there anyway. Um, now, you want to get fun with this one. Why don't we say the same thing about baptism? Hmm. Had many a, a long debate in seminary about that one. How do we say they have baptism if we say they don't have the supper? It's not, an, it's not an easy answer, but it comes down to this. They do believe they're baptizing. They do believe they're baptizing into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They just don't believe the results of that baptism are there by virtue of the baptism, but they fully believe that they're putting you into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit by this water, that you're becoming a member of the church. Even the Pelagians believe that. And so they, it's still a baptism. They're just not understanding the benefits. But when they have the bread and wine, they do not believe they're having the body and blood of Jesus at all. Right? That's not a result later. They might believe they're forgiven. They might believe they're in the covenant as a result, but they don't believe they have the actual... Jesus. The baptizers believe they have the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They don't believe in a different trinity. They believe in the same trinity. If they do believe in a different trinity, then we don't think it's a baptism, right? If the Mormons do it, we don't think it's a baptism. So that's, that's the hinge, is what is it that they have redefined and where? So, all right. Oh, I'm going to have to run here. I got three minutes. Uh, Let's see. Try to have something that. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, Ryan. Um, the world seems to think everyone can improve, but gets angry when we say people are sinners. Uh, what kind of hair is being split there? Yeah. So I had a really great uh, uh, email yesterday from somebody. And it, was, it was all in good, good fun. And at the end, uh, he, 
I've, it's finally fascinating. He shared how he didn't agree with my um, my views on uh, on nutrition, which is fine. Uh, but out of nowhere, there's exclamation points on it, which is I just find that it is so emotional. Why are we so emotional about our food? Well, it's because whether you agree with me or not, we all don't realize how how drug like our food is. Food impacts your emotions, and and well. Why would the the emotion in saying I don't agree with your food, Pastor Fisk, be so angry, right? And I'm not not sure it was anger, but like the exclamation points always feel angry. You know this, right? If you write an email and you put it in caps or exclamation points, it it will be read as anger. Okay, you don't mean it as anger. That's fine. It's seen as anger. It's read as anger. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just it's just good etiquette. Um, uh, uh, and I don't I didn't take this as anger from this individual. I just thought it was fascinating. Like like. Why, why is that such an important thing that we would shout it, right? Uh, and it, it does get into this, how do we accept the possibility of improvement when we have to be right? How can we have science be science when everything is settled if we disagree with it, right? Or if it, or if it impacts us in ways we don't, we don't want to look at. Uh, so on the nutrition thing, you know, it's settled, it's settled. Is it? How can you know that if you won't study it? If you if you say it's settled so you won't study it, that would imply it's probably not as settled as you think it is. Otherwise, you'd be happy to study it, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I mean that's how, and that's how they shut down, you know, uh, creation science. Same argument. They shut down creation science by saying it's settled. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's it's is it is worldwide flood settled? Is is evolution out of nothing settled? Really? Mm, sounds dogmatic to me. You know, it sounds like you got a religion going on there. Uh, exclamation points are valid points of punctuation. Nothing to do with anger, but I am a Brit. Maybe you are different. See, I feel sad. You've you've insulted me here with this exclamation point thing. <laughs> I'm just saying, be careful how you use them uh, in, in email and text. Um, they're not as bad as caps. You're right, and I use them sometimes too. Uh, but I always will put a smiley face beside it to make sure you know it's a happy exclamation point. Right, emoticons kind of save us. Have you ever put a, an emoticon smiley face beside all caps, though? Right? Yeah. Maybe you are different. <laughs> that's interesting. Like, what is the emotion there uh, that's conveyed? And, and yes, exclamation points are valid punctuation. Although, Sue, oh, look at you, grammarian. Grammarians, we need to realize that the rules that we were taught only reflect what is. And the moment we find that what is is not what we were taught, then the rule should reflect what is. We're not going to change language with our grammar. Uh, we need to have our grammar understanding reflect what is. And I'm talking about now intellectual discourse via email and text. I would contend use that exclamation point rarely, 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 rarely. I just got another text. I don't know, but I do know I got to go. Yep. 845 in order to make another meeting this morning. But hey, cool. Um, 74. This is great. This is awesome. Uh, you guys have a great morning. I will get the real podcast up soon, probably by by uh, by, by lunchtime today. Brian and I talking about not the end of the world, <laughs> a lot of other stuff. Uh, and then uh, if you want this one on refresh, it'll be coming out sometime later this week. All right. Don't wallow in the muck, my friends. Rock on.